This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Lerner Foundation and listeners like you. This is WMPG. I'm Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today we begin to wind down our series on the Maine Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission. As you've heard, the commission has published its findings demonstrating the practice of forcibly removing Native children from their families continues. Native children in Maine are still five times more likely to be removed from their homes under allegations of abuse and neglect than white children are. The commission suggested a number of technical solutions to this problem, but fundamentally called on all of us to examine the realities of structural racism and cultural genocide that underlie this practice. This is where Maine Wabanaki REACH comes in. REACH is an acronym that stands for Reconciliation, Engagement, Advocacy, Change, and Healing. They're tasked with making sure that the Commission's recommendations are considered and implemented. Today with me in the studio, I'll be talking with Penthea Burns, who's the co-director of REACH. Penthea is a lifelong Mainer. She's worked for the Muskie School of Public Service at USM since 1999 when she began working with the Wabanaki Tribal Child Welfare Programs and the State of Maine DHHS to improve Maine's compliance with the Indian Child Welfare Act, also known as ICWA. She's been involved in the development of the Maine Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission, focused on the trauma, losses, and resulting needs of tribal members who were taken from their family, culture, and community when they were placed in state foster care. Penthea is also a poet and raises Chinook dogs. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Penthea. Thank you, Anne. It's wonderful to be here with you. So you've been involved in working with child welfare for a long time, and um, I would like to start by just getting to know you a little bit better. What are the influences on you that made you want to do this work? Yeah, you know, I think um, it goes back. I grew up in a um, a big family in a small town, a working class family, and one of the things that I remember my parents uh, teaching me by example is um, there was always room for one more around the table, and they had this uh, generosity that exceeded their resources um, a lot of the time, and so I, I, from the youngest time, I remembered that someday I was going to work with young people who didn't have a place to live. That's how I conceptualized it at the time. And then meandered my way into to working in a shelter and eventually working in the, the state foster care system before doing the work that I do now. So you've spent the past three years deeply involved with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but for years mm-hmm. before that, trying to support the implementation of ICWA, which is all about keeping yeah. Native children in their communities. I wonder if you can go back to before you learned about all this, you mm-hmm. know, when you were f- first working as a social worker, presumably, right? Yes. Um, what were you taught about the need to remove a child from their family? What was the ethos behind that? Um, the the emphasis when I worked, I was at DHS in the mid-'80s into the 90s, and, uh, and the primary thing was... Um, protecting children from uh, abuse and neglect and um, and ensuring their safety. And, um, you know, of course, we worked with their families um, to attempt to reunify them. But I think it was pretty rare when, um, 
when we look to their family instead of bringing them into a stranger's home. One of the adages I remember hearing at the office was, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Um, There was a suspicion about their family as opposed to thinking about it from the perspective of the child about being with someone familiar, someone who knows them and um, and knows who they are and knows where they come from. Uh, it's complicated, though, isn't it? Because what I know as a clinician is that patterns of suffering do get handed down from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, trauma isn't good for people. It, it produces all manner of, you know, attempts to survive and to cope that are mm-hmm. not about flourishing. Right. And... You know, the way that I was taught to think about it as a clinician, too, was, you know, if this mom is abusing her child, she was probably abused, too. So is the Mm. grandmother really going to be so much safer? That's how I was thought. And so how do you think about that now, so many years later? Well, a couple different things. One, I think um, it it is not unusual for for a parent who um, is neglectful or abusive to their child to have experienced that. And... Um, We also know that when people experience abuse and neglect, the vast majority don't go on to do the same thing. So so both of those things are really relevant, and it's important for us to look for what is really happening as opposed to to live with our judgments and expectations of people. I think the other thing is... um, talking with people who have experienced foster care, uh, they may not gain the kind of um, warm and loving safety and accepting connection. They may experience additional hurts in the state foster care system. Um, a friend of mine who who came into care, one of the times she talked about it was, um, yeah, I was, I was hurt at home. But when I came into foster care, I was hurt too. And in some ways, it was worse because at least at home, people loved me. They really loved me. And um, so it is It is complex. Um, I don't, at the same time, I don't want to paint foster care in that broad brush, but um, just to say that it is, um, it's far more complex than that. I think the last thing I want to come back to about this, this assumption or this practice of child removal again, from my own training as a physician, we were taught so much, first of all, that we're mandated reporters. So Mm. by law, you have to call the state. And if you don't, you're really in trouble. So there's this element of fear about Mm. what's going to happen to me if I don't do, if I don't report. Mm. But um, I'm struck at how much the system, you know, valued concrete evidence of abuse as a criteria for removal but the valuing of the relationship mm-hmm. was almost nowhere. That the, even the the acknowledgement or perception that the child's whole relational world uh, was of tremendous value and would be an, a, a trauma of equal equal devastation to yeah. be ruptured from that. There was no ever really mention or acknowledgement or teaching about that. Did when you were in training, did that get acknowledged to you? Um. I guess I would say in some way, um, but that it uh, early in my career it didn't have the same weight as the urgency to protect the child from the hurt they were experiencing. And um, and uh, you know I sit here 
you know, dozens of faces going through my head of young people that I've worked with through the years, and some who today would say that that experience saved their life, um, and that, like, literally true, and for others, it really it damaged their life. When I hear you talk about this, it makes me feel such an appreciation for the people who are trying to make these decisions. Mm. What an overwhelming task. Mm. How to parse out who's going to be the child whose life you're saving mm. and who's going to be the person that you might be deeply wounding. Right. Uh, so right. hard to tell. Right. So I want to introduce now you know, a whole other layer of complexity here, which is in talking about the tribes in Maine and mm. Native communities and when you talk about a child losing their whole world for Native children who were adopted into, say, white families, they're losing a world that, that the white family can't compensate for, can't reconstitute, and also a world that is greatly threatened. So how do you think about what it means to remove a child from that setting? Yeah. We think we know what the world's supposed to look like, um, you know, that our society, we have this view of what it's supposed to look like. And I think that's part of the judgment that happened with Native kids is that taking them from these communities where uh, the poverty was so rampant and real hurts and challenges were happening in their families and placing them in a a non-Native family, a white family predominantly, you know, a nice home in a nice community, access to uh, other kinds of resources, There's something way beyond that that we weren't looking at. And it's this way of being, knowing who you are in the world. So when I was a little kid, I don't know if you want me to tell this story um, that far back, but um, I was probably in the fourth or fifth grade. And uh, my mom announced that our friends down the road had uh, these five foster kids Uh, had come to live with them and that they were uh, Indians, I think was probably the term that she used. Um, And so we went to visit and and we became friends and playmates. And I remember knowing that they were Native American, but aside from that, I didn't have any sense of what in the world that meant. Um, and, um, And then one day in high school, they were just not there anymore. And I never knew what happened to them never got any other information. So fast forward 20 years plus, something like that. I started doing this work, and as part of uh, teaching people, teaching caseworkers about the Indian Child Welfare Act, we created a documentary about uh, about Native American adults who were in the foster care system when they were kids. And I walked in to do an interview uh, in one of the tribal communities, and there was my childhood friend sitting across from me for me to interview. It was the first time we'd seen each other since high school. And um, so I sat there and interviewed her, and the whole time was flipping back and forth between doing this interview with the intention that we had to teach people, and then my mind would slip to seeing my childhood friend's face and her telling the stories of what she experienced. Um, Really difficult, awful things. But the pervasive thing she talked about was um, the trauma was simply in the taking. That um, it comes back to safety again. When she talked about safety, I remember her saying, 
um, people wanted to protect us and make us safe. And I don't know what a bigger risk to safety could be than never belonging anywhere, not feeling like you're rooted, feeling like you're going to float up and disappear from this planet because you don't have any sense of belonging. She talked about that severance from her culture and her community and that she didn't know who she was. The system removed her from the harm, but they removed her from her whole world, all she ever knew, um, and transplanted her somewhere else where she was encouraged to fit in. And for years after, I would think about um, that our childhood experiences diverged simply because she's Native American. And when you say that happened to her because she was Native American, I mean, the removal from her whole culture, that makes sense to me. It's hard to remove a white person in the United States from their whole culture in such Mm -hmm. a complete way. But do you feel she was removed from her family because she was Native American? And if so, how come? Um, Well, I'm going to answer it in two ways. I think so in in some respects because of the uh, what we have learned about the rates of removal being so high that there there's something there about um, the assumptions people made about what family practices should be and uh, whether or not there's um, acceptance of a different way of parenting. The other thing that I would say is that what has happened to Native communities since the beginning of this country becoming a country and as recent as right now, the taking of their lands continues, that the undermining of their families, the interference with economic development. We've created communities of poverty, of oppression, of such intrusion into their affairs that the ripples of harm have been so great that that any trauma within those communities on many levels, that responsibility lays at our feet. The other part is that um, this country was colonized, right? Um, And that created... uh, it gave me a worldview about what it means to be me in this world. And um, so it sort of colonized my thinking about who to be. And so the consequences of that, um, you know, the difference between our cultures and this sense of ownership, um, the sense of um, achievement in this world, how we're supposed to be, I mean, all those things... I guess, affected me as well. So that peeling away that and learning more about what has really happened in the country has shaken that in a way that feels kind of good. What I'm understanding you to say is that you grew up into the same colonial mentality that the Native Americans did. Everyone grew up into this, Mm. this set of values that was imposed. I mean, what I'm aware of listening to is when you said, well, this country was colonized, I, I, I did this little quick kind of like, what? Like, I'm aware. In just that moment, you were shifting my frame of reference. Mm-hmm. And I think I've carried this ignorant assumption that the United States wasn't colonized precisely because I represent the colonizer mm-hmm. and it was invisible to me. Mm-hmm. Right. Me too. So even you acknowledging that is like this kind of, whoa. Mm-hmm. And part of, 
part of um, doing some of this work with Reach, there's a piece of me that in learning about that, it almost was important to get closer to the colonizer to understand it and to claim uh, some level of responsibility or acknowledgement of how I benefit because of the way the country, this country was established and how people who I have now from Wabanaki communities, who I've now grown to, to know and love, um, have suffered because of that. Um, and the intention was to get them out of the way so that the land would be available for people like me. And now I live on 70 acres and I walk around it and, uh, and I, I have that privilege and um, is a, a piece that uh, is good for us to grapple with. Right, so very concretely when you say I benefit, you mean through ownership of land that yeah. was once theirs. Yes, yeah. yeah. And really the the culture being set up for me to be able to achieve more easily. There's less hurdles for me to get um, to get over um, than, um, you know, Wabanaki people uh, got the right to vote when in 19, uh, I think it was 1958 in federal elections. In Maine it was later. We were the latest state in the country, right? Last state in the country. Um, Home ownership, because um, home ownership was a huge impediment. I mean, the list goes on of this. I don't know about that, home ownership. Well, well, part of it was banking institutions um, would not award mortgages to people living on tribal communities because it was sovereign territory, they couldn't go in and repossess. So there was no financial structure set up for a long time to enable uh, Native people to be able to apply for, get a mortgage, and buy buy a, a house. Uh, in the same way, it's set up for you and me to do it, right? Yeah. Um, and so there's there's things that have been put in place, uh, you know, since that time. But for you know, for many years, that was a huge barrier. I want to talk to you now about the ally work mm. because it's so clear to me that your frame of reference has shifted mm. and that you're looking at history, you're looking at your own home through a very different lens mm. than you used to. Yeah. I understand that REACH, the organization that you co-direct, is very involved in reaching out to non-native Mainers to help them learn about our history and in particular, the history of our relationship with the tribes of Maine, as people get more educated about the history, what are you hoping will come of that? I, fundamentally, I, I hope within our people in Maine and within our government, there's greater respect for the sovereignty of the tribes. I think we use that word, but I think that we also use our greater power to undercut their ability to act and determine their own futures. I think some of that involves um, policymakers thinking about what are some things that we can do differently in our government that would be uh, less exertion of our power over these governments that reside within our borders. It's a pretty unique relationship in that way. Um, And then otherwise, I think from a really uh, person-to-person perspective, when you know more and really understand the events that happened and the lasting impact, uh, I would hope that it would uh, increase compassion and care and generosity between our peoples uh, and particularly between those of us in the dominant culture 
to want to reduce the barriers to their being able to thrive and and live in the way that they want to live in their communities um, and and perhaps to prevent uh, the extinction of their peoples. So the stakes are very high. Really high. And they know it. I mean, a, this young person in one of the communities made a comment to her mother saying something like, I'm so proud to be a Passamaquoddy because someday people are only going to know about us from books. Um, and what it, we don't, we don't have to think about that. There's not, there's not that risk. And I, I think by and large people in this state are really unaware. Some of them that Wabanaki people exist and others, um, they don't understand the, uh, the challenge that we have put upon them. Just trying to imagine being a child growing up with that kind of consciousness. Mm. It's really heartbreaking. It is, isn't it? It is. What have been the biggest challenges for you, Penn? You've been deeply invested in this work. What's a moment where you suddenly realized that you were not getting something? Two instances I remember. One is really quick. We were meeting one day, and um, we were talking about racism and oppression, and one of the people from one of the Wabanaki communities was was telling some aspect of their experience, and I was moved and tearful. And um, and when she finished talking, I, I expressed uh, some kind of remorse or sorrow, really guilt about what happened to her life um, and her community. And she said, you know what, Penn, I don't need your guilt. Whatever you need to do to tend to that, do it. Your guilt doesn't help me. And, um, and I, it really took me aback. It made me figure out I had to sort through my own feelings and not, not make her go, have to go through that to help me with that, that it was really about taking responsibility for my own learning. Um, that was really an important awakening for me. So that she doesn't have to help you feel better about yourself or reassure right. you that you're a good person or something like that. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Or to even understand that in a different way. It's not her job to do that. So part of that with REACH is doing the work in the non-Native communities. We sometimes get, you know, some feedback that helps us sharpen our focus from our Wabanaki partners, but it's our job to do that work. Um, and so that is a really uh, a point of great clarity. I think the other big turning point that I remember as a huge lesson about privilege, um, in the middle of the process with the commission, we had a conference call one day about um, making plans to go for the commission to go into one of the Wabanaki communities to gather statements. Uh, the commission was proposing a fairly large team of people to go in, the commissioners, some volunteers, and all of their staff. Um, the folks from the Wabanaki communities who were organizing um, set the limit on the number of people who could come in. And um, when the commissioners raised some questions about that, I found myself thinking, oh, I'm not surprised that they would want the rest of their staff there. I felt understanding 
of the questions they were raising and the pushback that they were giving. And um, the Wabanaki folks stood firm on that, but continued to get pushed back to the point where it turned into a really hurtful exchange. And it was not until then that I realized how easy it was for those of us in the dominant culture to ask for what we want, to ask again when we've heard no. We know how to exert our privilege. And I hadn't seen privilege as clearly played out as I did in that moment. Uh, And the Wabanaki people were standing ground for their communities, thinking about people who were going to be telling their story maybe for the first time and not wanting to do that with this uh, really large group of people from outside their community, non-Native people. And it was in that moment that I realized, oh, my God, I sat here and watched and I didn't do anything. I left them to be the only one holding the ground. And I was able to look back at a series of events where the same things happened, where white people who were doing good in this process, it was important work that they were doing, but they were pushing the limits within the Wabanaki communities in a way that um, I didn't see, nor did I step in to intervene because I didn't see. The commissioners, to their credit, uh, saw that as well. They came forward and made amends. We defined a new way of, of planning and doing things, a new way of talking about things. Uh, in some ways, I don't know if I would say that it was good that that happened, but in some ways I would say it was outstanding that it happened, that we needed to see what privilege looked like at play in between us. Thank you for sharing that. It makes sense to me, both sides of it. I mean, it makes sense to me what you're talking about. I recognize that in myself, this kind of assumption of it is my right to ask for what I want. There's, We cultivate that in our children in some ways. We call it confidence. Yes. But really, there's a kind of entitlement underneath it. That's what you're talking about. Yes. And, and it's not our territory. It's not our land. It's not our stories that we were going in to, um, to collect. Um, and so the people who were sharing their stories needed to be the ones in the decision-making seat. And um, it was a great turning point for Reach and the Commission to have some deeper understanding about that. It makes me think of a story that I was told by a guest on the show earlier in this series about how you know white people almost never came into these communities. And when they did, it was often for something very intrusive like coming in to remove a child. Yes. And I heard stories about you know, a strange car with white people in it would drive onto the community and mothers would hide their children. Yes. And so you can imagine that a whole group of people, many of whom were white, driving into the community, there's a legacy there that speaks to the whole subject itself. Yes. That, yes. that the white people were oblivious to. Yeah. You know, there's this story in my family that we used to chuckle over um, in the 1950s, they built the bridge to Indian Island, and I grew up in a small town down the road from there. And so when the bridge went up, people would go over to see the Indians, um, I guess, like an attraction. And and my parents did that um, one time, and I guess I was a 
a baby or a toddler or something. And um, so they went over to the island and drove around, and I don't know what we did over there, but as they were driving to leave the island, someone stopped them and questioned them about um, about taking me and whether I was a child from that community. If the, Those of you that can't see me, I'm a brunette with big brown eyes. And, um, and we used to chuckle about that being, you know, that my parents are, you know, trying to take a kid. Now... I shudder when I think of how real that was and um, the courage that it took someone to stop my parents um, and the fear that they probably felt in doing that. And um, it's not a story to chuckle over anymore. It makes me think how how frequent it must have been and how, yeah. how the expectation was that this was something that might literally just be happening at yeah. any moment. Yeah. Yeah, it's real in a way that we can't really even, it's hard for us to comprehend. Panthea, thank you so much for being my guest on the show. I know that you're a poet, (laughs) and I know that you write about this, and Mm. it feels fitting to ask you to close our interview with reading some of your words about it. Would you Mm. be willing to do that? I would be happy to do that. Okay, so... Do you want to tell me a little bit about what this poem is before you read it? Yes, it's a poem called uh, Reparation. I was asked to compose a poem for the closing ceremony for the commission when they um, they had their closing ceremony in June. And I thought a lot about the word reparation. There's been a lot of fear about that in the commission process from the beginning. But I think acknowledging the harms and recognizing that there's things that we can do to repair, not to make up for what happened, but to to create some repairs and maybe create a better future is um, the thought behind this poem. So yes, the, the, the poem, the larger poem starts with an acknowledgement of the different kinds of harms um, that have occurred to Native people in this territory. Um, and this is the end uh, of the poem that starts to look at Uh, acknowledging what the possibilities could be. So let me read this to you. I acknowledge that hope depends on our people finding our shared humanity, standing for what is good in our world and in ourselves. Hope depends on our people repairing the takings with generosity and justice making amends for the lies with a truthful look at history, at ourselves, restoring those terrorized with healing and compassion, compensating for our silence by listening and bearing witness and speaking out, silent no more. Hope depends on knowing that we do not own, that we have no authority from God, except a mandate to love one another, to love this land that we call home, to live in peace together. I know what we've done. I have heard your stories, 
witnessed your tears, been amazed by your resilience, that you are still here. While our collective acts are written on my heart, our crimes need not define us. For I know too what is possible when we choose justice and compassion, when we choose to acknowledge and repair, to stand in solidarity. This is the time. This is the hour. Shall we fulfill our mandate and remember who we are? Cynthia Burns, thank you so much for the heart that I sense you bring to the work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for giving some attention to this. It's really helpful. If you'd like to learn more about Maine Wabanaki Reach, you can go to their website at mainewabanakireach.org, and you can learn about ally trainings and educational presentations if you'd like to participate in one of them. If you like this show and want to stay connected to these issues, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. And you can find us on the web at safespaceradio.com and listen to any of our past shows, including the earlier shows about Wabanaki history, the TRC itself, and the work of breaking silence in order to heal. While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor. Coming up next is Speak Freely.